we talking? Yeah. We're live. Try to ignore the mic. <laughs> what mic? <laughs> I can play along with this game. Good. You're going to have thousands of tapes. You're going to have to edit this episode, okay? I'm Debbie Gallant, and you're listening to The Chemo Files. And guess who's back? My son Noah, who dreamed up this little podcast and has returned from his year at AmeriCorps. And he's not only to take me to chemo and clean up my puke, but he's now my amanuensis, my literary stenographer, and in this case, the holder of the mic. In fact, in my opinion, he's already pushing the limits of waiting room etiquette at the oncologist's office. If we just keep the mic on, maybe we just forget that it's there eventually. Get some more interesting sound. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I, not a, I'm not a drinker. I don't think you have to ever do it. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's funny. <laughs> Already, then. That's good sound. You're proving my point. Let me recap a little bit. Almost three months ago, I had the routine mammogram I get every year, followed by a breast ultrasound. I knew something was wrong when the technician called a doctor in. Sure enough, they'd spotted something, and a few weeks later, a biopsy confirmed the bad news, cancer. Suddenly, I was in cancer land, a twisted board game where, even though it feels like the doctor should be calling the shots, with every roll of the dice, someone ends up putting a decision on you. It starts with, what doctor? Do you schlep all the way to Sloan Kettering, the New York Yankees of cancer care? Or do you find a doctor close by to make life easier? I wound up choosing the latter, following the recommendation of my OBGYN, the guy who delivered Noah 23 years ago, and who has been advising me on my lady parts ever since. And that's just the first decision. And meanwhile, more test results keep coming in. I found out within the first week I have something called triple negative breast cancer, which is bad. More aggressive, not responsive to hormone therapy much more likely to recur. If you're getting surgery, and and not everybody does, you basically have two choices. Lumpectomy, where they take out just the tumor and surrounding tissue, or mastectomy, where they lop off the whole breast. Years ago, mastectomies were much more common. Lumpectomies came about as a surgical refinement, almost a feminist reform, taking into consideration a woman's emotional attachment to her breasts. But mastectomies have made something of a comeback in recent years, and nothing is more emblematic of that than Angelina Jolie's decision to have a preventative mastectomy after discovering she had a defective BRCA1 gene predisposing her to breast cancer. Which surgery you get depends on a lot of factors. The most immediate one is the size of the tumor and how easily the surgeons can reach it. Essentially, whether it's even logistically possible to excise the whole tumor without removing the breast. But there's also the fear of recurrence. And whatever the statistics say, and I was told that in my case they were pretty even, it just felt like removing the whole breast would be safer. And then there was the fact that my daughter was pushing for mastectomy all along. One of her best friend's mothers had breast cancer and opted for a lumpectomy. The cancer eventually came back, and she died. So, it's a matter of life and death, and second-guessing. It's like, what's worse? The possibility of sending an innocent man to prison, or potentially letting a dangerous killer walk free? 
These are hard decisions to make, and the doctors really try not to push you too hard in one direction or another. They want you to decide, which is theoretically empowering, but it's kind of like having the SWAT team hand over the megaphone to you. Isn't this what we have professionals for? The first time I met my oncologist, Dr. Scott Petullo, we were talking about all of this. I already had a date for the surgery the following week, and my surgeon and I were waiting for the result of the BRCA test, the same one Angelina Jolie took, to decide lumpectomy or mastectomy. Either way, though, we were scheduled for surgery. And by the way, an MRI had just come back with the news that there was something suspicious in my other breast, too. Dr. Scapatulo seemed surprised that we might be considering a lumpectomy, the less aggressive course of action, without having biopsied the newly found mass. I asked if the biopsy could be done without putting the surgery off. He didn't think so. I was reluctant to delay surgery. I was still living in cancer land and anxious to make the next move. Afterwards, as a lifelong journalist, I felt embarrassed that I couldn't remember whether he'd aired his reservations explicitly or if I was just picking up on a vibe. It might have even been something as imperceptible as a nod. A friend in the cancer sisterhood had recommended that I bring someone along to this appointment, and now I understood why. All I know is that from that moment on, I began to lean towards getting a double mastectomy, even if my BRCA test came back normal. And in the end, that's exactly what I did. Now I'm back in the oncologist's office three weeks after surgery, and this time I have someone with me. It does make a difference. Last time I was just a patient in a doctor's office. Now I'm on assignment with a crew. I feel more comfortable than I would because here we are and we're doing the Noah and Debbie show, Noah and Mom show, on someone else's turf. So it's only fair that we have at least one piece of equipment that we brought. Exactly. I'll put my mic up against that blood pressure cuff. It was good to get a laugh in, even at the oncologist's. But face it, the subject was still life and death. Ever since I found out my cancer was triple negative, they'd said I'd need chemo. I had to find out all kinds of things. What they're putting in my body, how I'll react to it, when I'll lose my hair. And I'm also trying to figure out how in the world I'm going to be able to schedule things. I have a job, conference calls to make, meetings. I've heard that some people schedule chemo on Friday so they can come back to work on Monday. I want to be able to plan to make commitments. But all I hear is that everybody's reaction to chemo is different. Because of early technical difficulties, some portions of the tape are obscured by static. And for the most part, we've only included decent quality sound. But this next portion, which might be hard to hear, we've kept in, well, because it's important. I'll turn it over to Noah. with the oncologist felt a little bit like being back in a college lecture. There's a lot of information to go over, and because time is limited, you have to budget your questions. Some information I could feel myself forgetting the moment it reached my ears. The pathology report, for instance. Talk of centimeters goes in one ear and out the other as mom takes scrupulous notes and I hold the mic. With the first treatment, we do give you some pre-medication with a drug called Decadron. 
uh, to prevent any reaction. If you have no reaction, you don't have to take Decadron afterwards. But Scapatulo is a good professor. Um, he is patient and even as he lays out the options for chemo. The conversation seems to be more about choice than either of us had really anticipated. Uh, going forward, yeah. what chemotherapy? Yes. And that's where um, there are some options. When I hear that, I begin to tense up a bit. We came in kind of thinking he would tell us exactly what to do. And speaking for myself, the introduction of options was a little overwhelming. But the general rule of thumb is simple. The more aggressive the cancer, the more aggressive the course of treatment recommended. He tells us about three possible regimens, and each is referred to by the initials of the drugs it uses. He lays it out like this. CMF is the oldest regimen and the least toxic. The next option is called CT, which is a little tougher to take, and with this C, which is, by the way, different from the C in CMF, we start to hear about some side effects. Cytoxin sometimes can cause uh, mouse sores, sometimes can cause um, inflammation of the bladder, something like a bladder infection, uh, and cytoxin sometimes can cause some diarrhea. But of course, he's saving the best, or worst, for last. And before he even mentions it, you can tell this is going to be the one that he recommends. And that's a combination of drugs that's called ACT, uh, cytoxin, adromycin, and taxol. Um, obviously, as the regimens progress, they become more toxic and have more side effects. Um, if you were definitively node positive, ACT would be the recommended treatment. The A in ACT, adromycin, you might already be familiar with. That's the famous one. The red one. The one that makes your hair fall out. And while Mom has already prepared herself mentally for this drug, it still isn't nice to hear about. And then there's something else we hadn't been tipped off about. Adriamycin has a possible side effect. Insidious heart failure. And while he stresses the word rare, when we get him to use a ballpark figure, it doesn't sound quite as rare as we'd like. At the doses you're going to get. About 5% chance. In the end, even though Dr. Scapatulo has said that all three of these treatments are reasonable, the recommendation for my mom is the most aggressive course, ACT. The recording of this conversation with Scapatulo is about 30 minutes long. And as mom and I go back and listen to it, it starts to feel like the static on the mic isn't the only source of unclarity. What I really wanted, well, besides a good prognosis, is for the doctors, the statistics, and conventional wisdom all to agree. I want the choice to be so obvious, it's not even a choice. At least, that would maybe take some of the pressure off. But when I return to the tape, it doesn't seem so obvious. A lot of the factors are just... borderline. Like metastasis, for instance. The doctor says you might get one course of treatment or another based on whether your cancer is lymph node positive or negative. During her surgery, Mom had 16 lymph nodes removed, and only one of them came back with any trace of cancer. And it's tiny. When Dr. Scapatulo gives us the pathology report at the beginning of the appointment, he tells us that she is right on the threshold. It's called a micrometastasis. He tells us that in many cases, this would be considered lymph node negative. But 
when I listen back, I realize he never says that specifically about my mom's case. Then there's this throwaway about CMF, which, again, is supposed to be the most bearable chemo. There is a somewhat of a suggestion that patients who have triple negative breast cancer may benefit from this regimen. It's not proven prospectively with studies, but retrospectively, there's been some evidence that it may be good for patients. As I review, I find myself dumbfounded at all of the questions I don't ask. Not because I think he's trying to hide anything or be unclear, just how come I didn't ask? Like, do you consider her node negative or node positive? If you can tell me 5% is the risk factor for heart failure from ACT, can you give me a number that illustrates the reward? If there's some suggestion that triple negative cancer patients respond well to CMF, the least toxic option, why are we pushing ACT? And by the way, what's a suggestion? What do the numbers say? Or are there numbers? How much is art? How much is science? I do get one important question in, though. The question I've been told you're supposed to ask the oncologist. The question my mom didn't ask in her first appointment with Dr. Scapatulo, when there was all this haziness about which surgery to get. And bear with me, because this is the part where static makes it a little tough to hear. And if you... If this were a family member of yours, who were the same age as mom. Yeah. Yeah. Did you catch that? He says it very quietly, but he says it. ACT. That's what he would do if it were a loved one. Now I think I understand how my mom left the first appointment with all of this uncertainty. That's Dr. Scapatulo's style, and actually, I kind of like him for it. He's reserved and respectful. He makes judicious use of the sober nod. He doesn't try to scare you or bully you into abiding his recommendation. I've never met another oncologist, but my guess is that Dr. Scapatulo does pretty much the same thing as everybody else. He sets up the playing board, hands out the game pieces, and explains the rules. But ultimately, he leaves the final move up to you. That's Cancerland. So anyway... We have an appointment to start chemo tomorrow. And even though we're still somewhat unconvinced, it looks like we'll go with the ACT because, well, we figure it's probably just best to listen to the doctor. Here's me and Noah up late debating the heart failure thing. We have to keep asking about that. I mean, we, we should. We have to get the information about that, at least just that it puts you at ease. Well, here's we... the thing. I did talk to Noel about it. And what did he say? And he looked up the drugs, and he looked up the history. He, he, I told him about, I, first of all, there is a test that I was given, a MUGA, a MUGA scan, M-U-G-A, okay. which tests the strength of your heart. And the nurse called me, and she said, you got a 70. That's great. And I said, 70, well. That's I, a C minus. I said, yeah, like 70s. When I came home with a 70. <laughs> I go, 70? That's really, that's best? I said, don't people get 100? She goes, well, very rarely. Also, because we're pretty sure we're doing ACT, we're preparing for my hair to fall out in about three weeks, which means now we can get to the fun stuff. Wig shopping. I'll admit, Losing your hair doesn't sound like a blast, but when you take your hairdresser, your daughter, one of your best friends, and your mic-toting husband along, it becomes a field trip. 
and I'm queen for the day. The wig shop was in a little suburban shopping mall. The owner reminded me of the type of woman who used to work at a local New Jersey bathing suit store called Helen Hirsch, where a bunch of yentas waited outside the dressing room and gave you the brutal truth on how you looked and whatever you tried on. What'd you think of that? And as much as I'd love to play even a few seconds of this woman fitting me for a wig, because everything she said was hilarious, including her defense of Donald Trump's hair and politics, we got a call from her son the next day saying their lawyer forbade us to use any tape of them or even mention their store's name. The first wig was blonde and straight, and as Margot said, it made me look like Hillary Clinton. At any rate, it screamed wig. Andrea? Yes. I don't like the straightness of it, that's all. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. And yeah. I was going to say, does it, could, any, could you cut it into me? I can't cut it into wave. No. Okay. That's what I can't do. The second wig they brought out was my real hair color, pretty much. Salt and pepper. But the best thing was, it was messy, like my real hair. It does look like your natural. Oh, wow, cutie. Okay. It does. We did explore hair fantasies, too, but not for long. You know, I, I have permission now. If I don't want to go gray for anymore, we can do, we can change what, what I am at this point. So she's going to find one similar to that, but in a color yeah, similar. Yeah. It was more like even like my like red, your hair. Like, you know, like yeah. something warm. Yeah. We're wow. just curious. Keep that in mind. I'm not curious about what? Oh, about oh, having hair. long hair? I mean, the only, like, the fantasy I had was sort of the. You know, the Barbara Eden, was it Barbara Eden? The, no, um, is Agent 99? No, Barbara Felden. Barbara Felden. <laughs> but just talking from experience, being around a lot of cancer people and having, I never had chemo, thank God, but when you lose your hair, something happens to you where you might feel a little bit differently than you do now. Yeah. So you want to feel secure and like good. You don't want to be like, why the hell did I get this long-haired wig? Or You know what I mean? You want to feel like yourself. Right. That's the point of a wig. But you can't really feel that right now because you're not there yet. Right. So right. when you get there, you'll feel that absence of like, who am I? And you want that back. So it was kind of fun. Like shopping for a wooden leg with all your favorite pals. While all this was going on, we were sort of on a vacation. Before the diagnosis, we were supposed to spend a week in Asheville, North Carolina, to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary. And by a small miracle, both adult children were available to join us. But we had to cancel the trip. So we planned a staycation and decided we would enjoy where we live, which is, after all, just 12 miles from New York City. We went to a museum, an off-Broadway show, the beach, a high-concept perfume shop in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and even took some of our friends on a cruise around Manhattan where jazz trios played and we could stuff ourselves silly with locks and bagels. In fact, while I was talking about all this to my therapist, who's known me for the better part of two decades, she said I actually sounded happier than I had before. Talking about this with Noah the next day, I felt so blessed with the fullness of my life, even during cancer, that I asked him to take out the mic. Last night, and you know, I was just telling her about, you know, our staycation and the guy who made the ice cream for me and, you know, the, the, the flavor I wanted, which really didn't have anything to do with cancer or anything. I want to stretch out every minute of it. You know, I don't want to take any of it for granted, and I don't want to let bullshit and and um, 
like office politics and things that would normally have bothered me um, get to me. I might, I'm not going to let it eat me up anymore. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. But it, it is a chance to think about wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and say, I want this, I don't want that. You know, it, you realize in a way that you don't, that time is finite. And, um, and that doesn't have to be a, as terrifies, terrifying as it sounds and uh, as it feels that first week. And I also told Joyce, and I remembered this, that um, Larry Blasco, a friend of Warren's from the AP, when I wrote my essay that first, you know, 48 hours of having cancer, and he wrote in a note, he said, I hope you realize that this is now a golden ticket to make sure that you are doing whatever it is that gives you joy. And I said, it, I wrote back to him and I said, it feels like a golden ticket to being fearful all the time, you know? <laughs> and um, that's how it felt at the beginning. And, 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 but, you know, just realizing that, you know, we had a very good, I thought we had a very good week last week, you know, of, um, doing all these, these things together as a family, even though we had to cancel our trip and, you know, having little adventures and going to the beach. And I, I told Joyce all about us sitting on the beach and talking about the autistic gull. <laughs> out that we were we were quite wrong in our, our analysis but you know playing and, and how fun it was to uh, play the ukulele with you and how different it was to play the ukulele with you than the way I'd been playing it which was just like looking at chords and songs and um, you know going to smell those perfumes and going up to this you know, this sort of little shitty corner of Williamsburg with all these industrial buildings and Margot going, why are we going to a perfume shop? And then going in there and seeing all these smells and smelling all these smells that were just evocative. And that even though the one I got, which was, I guess, macadamia coffee, I'm a little disappointed with the... Um, uh, the essence, it's supposed to be strong and stay on you for a long time, and it doesn't really, but I still am kind of happy I got it because it reminds me of Saturday mornings because Daddy always makes flavored coffees on Saturday mornings, and even though I really don't like drinking flavored coffees, I like the smell of it, and what could be better than something that reminds you of Saturday mornings, which is my favorite time of the whole week? So, you know, it's... That's, you know, those are, those are the lessons. Those are the things that you, the ways you start to change and, um, um, in good ways, even though you didn't expect it. But yeah, right now, today, just feeling, you know, coming home from a fairly short day at work and taking a five hour nap was like, oh shit. You know, I, you know, cause you just feel like, oh, I'm so tired. I could do this. I could do that. Oh, nothing seems worth it. Nothing seems worth the effort. And that's, maybe that's a lesson. Uh, maybe that is going to be a lesson, you know, in, in giving up in not giving up, but in letting go, letting go the ego, letting go the, um, 
the tenacity that, you know, I've done a lot of work, I've accomplished a lot of things, I've started things, I've written books, you know, if Debbie Gallant takes it easy for six months, the world is not going to, you know, stop revolving around its axis. That's right. It's really good. <laughs> I think. I mean, that's a really good place to be at. Stay there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, everything's about to get shaken up. Yeah, yeah, and they're also, like, Bunny also told me, I guess one of the drugs, he said this at, at, when we were taping, is a red drug yeah. that goes in you, and she said that ever since then, she's just, like, she doesn't even like the, the color red to wear, you know, as a purse or as shoes or anything like that. It's hard to imagine that. And actually, you know what? That day that we were at the Whitney and I felt started feeling nauseous, I had just thought that, like about the color red and her getting nauseous and then I just got nauseous like as we were walking around the Whitney it was just really weird and and um so you know I'm it's not all like um I'm a zen master <laughs> you know I'm not trying to present myself as a zen master who's you know achieved a higher consciousness I'm just just a student I'm a Zen student. A special thanks to the whole crew that accompanied me to the wig shop. Andrea Fresco Mastrolia, Liza Dawson, and Margo Levinson. To Noah, who jumped full into the producer role, writing, editing, and staying up late at night looking up medical articles on Adriamycin. To Warren Levinson, my husband and tape editor. To my doctors, who have been so generous in letting me tape them. To Joe M. Ditas, who managed to clean up some of that messy tape and of course, to composer Evan Schwartzman, who composed Tango of the Wigs just for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Chemo Files. I'll be back.